0: Costume Drama Rewind. This time we're headed to London's gritty East End in the year 1888 with The Movie From Hell. Released in 2001, it was directed by the Hughes brothers Albert and Allen, and it stars Johnny Depp, Heather Graham, Robbie Coltrane,
1: and Ian Holm. First, a quick synopsis. It's the late summer of 1888, and a small band of sex workers in London's infamous Whitechapel neighborhood are having a rough time, as a local gang is pressing them for protection money that they don't have. They run into their friend Anne, who got away from her former life by marrying one of her lovers, a wealthy painter, and having a daughter with him, Baby Alice. Anne promises financial help so they can pay off the gang, but a short while later is kidnapped, along with her husband, by a strangely official-looking group of men. Soon after, the other women begin to turn up murdered in gruesome fashion. In swoops police detective, opium addict, and sometime medium Frederick Aberline, played by Johnny Depp. He's accompanied by his boss, Rubius Hagrid, Robbie Coltrane, who occasionally makes use of Aberline's powers of foresight, even while he's fairly freaked out by them. You're a wizard, Harry! The murders begin to proceed in the same order and with the same painstakingly recreated details as in real life. First, Polly Nichols. Then Annie Chapman. As Aberline investigates these murders in an apparent race against the clock, he joins forces with Mary Kelly, played by Heather Graham, who is the only one of the five to be given any real backstory here. She's a simple girl from the Irish coast. With no real Irish accent, but with fire engine red hair. She finds herself longing to return home, and Aberline is clearly smitten with her as they investigate together. They find Anne locked up and lobotomized in the workhouse, which raises questions about just who wanted to silence her. Aberline believes that the murderer
0: must have medical knowledge, and he begins poking around in London's teaching hospitals. He meets Sir William Gull, the official physician to Queen Victoria, and who's played by Ian Holm, a.k.a. Bilbo Baggins. Throughout the investigation, Aberline keeps running into Masonic signs and symbols, and this points to a deeper conspiracy. The clencher is... His and Mary's realization when they go view a portrait was presumably the National Gallery that her friend Anne's husband and the father of her child was actually Prince Albert Victor, eldest grandson of Queen Victoria.
1: Whoops. At Aberline's urging, the women, now down to Mary, Elizabeth Stride, Kate Eddowes, and a random French prostitute they've made friends with named Ada, hole up in one small room in a lodging house. Elizabeth and Kate soon grow frustrated with the situation. They separately leave and are murdered the same night in what has become known in Ripperology as the Double Event. Meanwhile, Aberline puts everything together and realizes that Sir William Gull, backed up by the Metropolitan Police and his fellow Masons, is killing the women to protect the royal succession so that no one ever discovers that the heir to the throne, especially as Prince Albert Victor is dying of syphilis, is Anne's Catholic baby daughter. They fight, Aberline is briefly incapacitated... Sir William assumes his full Bilbo-possessed-by-the-ring form, and he heads across town to find Mary and kill her, a crime for which his fellow masons later lobotomize him. What's presumed to be Mary's body is found the next morning in the small room she'd taken in the lodging house, but she's been mutilated beyond recognition. And it turns out that it wasn't her at all, but their friend Ada. Poor one out for Ada.
0: Aberline finds a letter waiting for Mary in the Tin Bell's pub. It informs him that she's gotten Anne's baby into her care, and she's fled home to the Irish coast, and she'll be waiting for him to join her there. Aberline longs to go to her, but he's convinced that those who would kill her will only follow him there and realize she's still alive, so he stays put. Some years later, Hagrid finds a clearly aged and heartbroken Aberline dead of an apparent overdose, and we cut to Mary, living free and happy in Ireland, raising Anne's daughter as her own, and her crayon red
1: hair is taking over her face. First Impressions Can we talk about how shocked we are that Johnny Depp was not the murderer? That was really what I went into this expecting. I may be too heavily influenced by the fact that my first experience with him was the movie Secret Window. Once I got over that, I liked this movie more than I thought I would. I always enjoy a good conspiracy plot, but I did have to close my eyes for more than a few scenes, so there's that.
0: When the movie came out way back in the day, I too somehow thought that Johnny Depp was Jack the Ripper, And that this was supposed to be some sort of really gruesome torture porn movie. So I basically spent the entire movie waiting for the big reveal to be that he's Jack the Ripper. And then that didn't happen. So I remember I complained to you like immediately
1: as the credits started rolling. Like, what was that? You're so much fun to watch things with. I am. Let's get right down to the heart of the matter. Jack the Ripper killed prostitutes, right? That's really the one thing we all know about those strange and scary few weeks in the late summer and early fall of 1888. As it turns out, that is almost certainly incorrect. In the book The Five, The Untold Lives of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper, historian Hallie Rubenhold takes some pains to trace the story of each of the canonical five, the women who we can say with reasonable certainty were all killed by the same person. For a group of women who were living on the fringes of society— there's a ton of documentary evidence about their lives, but for at least three of the five, there is no actual evidence or testimony that they ever engaged in the sex trade. So what do we know they had in common with one another? Most of them had been married and had been the mother to at least one child. Several of them had achieved economic stability at some point in their lives and at least lower middle class comfort. All of them had known some degree of personal tragedy. All of them had become estranged from their families including both families of origin and their husbands and children. Every one of them struggled with alcoholism, a problem that seems to have predated and precipitated their time on the streets. By the time of their deaths, all of them were essentially homeless, and two of them were suffering the final stages of a terminal disease. None of these backstories really come out in the movie, but let's meet each of them anyway. Marianne,
0: or Polly, Nichols was born in 1845. She was the daughter of a printer who was living in the area of London's famous Fleet Street. Her mom died of tuberculosis when she was just seven, followed by her little brother Frederick. At age 18, she married journeyman printer William Nichols. They got married in London's famous St. Bride's Church, which was also known as the printer's church. The early years of the marriage were happy. They had five children. And the Nichols earned a spot in one of the Peabody buildings. These were model homes for the working poor that were established by American expat financier George Peabody. But within a few years, the marriage began to collapse. According to Polly, it was when her husband began a relationship with a widowed neighbor. But according to the husband, it was when Polly's drinking got out of control.
1: Polly and William separated in 1880, and for a few years, she bounced between a series of shabby and dangerous lodging houses— various London workhouses, and outright homelessness. Her position became more precarious when William stopped paying her weekly five shillings maintenance. He had, in fact, married the wintered neighbor, so I guess Polly was right about at least one thing. <coughs> in increasingly dire straits, she experienced an extended stay in the workhouse, which found her position as a maid in a house in Wandsworth, presumably not the dodgy end. She held that position for no more than two months before leaving in July of 1888. For the next month and a half, she would alternate nights in Whitechapel's lodging houses with nights spent sleeping on the street. The last person to see her alive was her friend Ellen Holland, who ran into Polly around 2.30 a.m. on August 31st, 1888, as Polly was attempting to beg a few shillings for a lodging house bed. Her body was found just over an hour later. She was 43 years old.
0: Eliza Ann, or Annie Chapman, was born in September 1841. She was the daughter of a cavalry trooper in Queen Victoria's second lifeguards and a housemaid from Sussex. Her parents were poor, but her father's position did have some advantages, including regular school and lodging in the more respectable West End of London. Tragedy struck, though, in the spring of 1854, when a typhus epidemic killed four of the six children in just three weeks. Her parents would have three more children after this, but that terrible spring cast some long shadows. Her father began working as the valet for one of his regiment's more aristocratic officers, which brought better pay and greater comfort, but it isolated him more from both his fellow cavalrymen and his family. He was already struggling with alcoholism, and he took his own life in 1863. By that point, Annie was then working as a domestic servant, and she married John, a coachman, in 1869. His job afforded them a comfortable existence, especially once he started writing staples for Francis Tresbury, a wealthy gentleman who would eventually win first a baronetcy and then a seat in parliament but she was lonely living
1: on the Barry estate near windsor and annie began drinking heavily she gave birth to seven children during this time only three of whom lived past early infancy and one of whom experienced severe disabilities at the urging of her husband and sisters she spent a few months in a sanitarium to be treated for her alcoholism but fell off the wagon again soon after her return home, and she and John separated in 1884. By this time, she was suffering from tuberculosis, and the next four years of sleeping rough in Whitechapel caused her health to spiral downward quickly. The last time anyone saw her alive, she was at one of her regular lodging houses, unable to scrape together the coins to buy a bed for the night, and asking the proprietor to trust that she was good for it. He declined, and Annie went to find a place on the streets to sleep. She was found just before 5 a.m. on September 8, 1888, with her pockets containing two bottles of pills for treating the late stages of tuberculosis, marked from the charity ward at St. Bartholomew's Hospital. She was 47 years old. Elizabeth
0: Stride was born in a rural farmhouse in Sweden in 1843, and she grew up in a deeply religious Lutheran household. At age 16, she moved to the city of Gothenburg and began working as a domestic servant for a middle-class shoemaker. She was there for about four years before leaving abruptly and moving to lodgings of her own. Within months, it was apparent that she was pregnant. Because she refused to give the name of the baby's father, it's not clear whether she was seduced or assaulted, which wasn't uncommon amongst young female domestics, or whether she entered a sexual or romantic relationship of her own free will. Because of the pregnancy, however, the city laws required her to register as a public woman and submit to regular exams by the authorities they soon also discovered that she had contracted syphilis. Her disease is likely what caused her child to be stillborn, and she experienced a period of living on the fringes of society before finding respectable work as a maid to wealthy patrons of the arts who wanted to extend charity to one of the so-called public women.
1: That family eventually helped Elizabeth find her way to London, where she again worked as a domestic servant before meeting and marrying the carpenter John Stride. Together, they pursued John's dream of opening a coffee house. But two different attempts failed, and the couple began arguing, which seems to have been exacerbated by Elizabeth's failures to become pregnant. The couple separated, and Elizabeth embarked upon life as a single woman in the East End, supporting herself with irregular work cleaning houses, and also by creating some elaborate fictions about her life, including a tale that had her husband and several of her fictional children dying in the then-notorious crash of the excursion boat, the Princess Alice, a tragedy that had rocked London a short time before. By this time, she was also in the fatal tertiary stage of syphilis, experiencing its characteristic seizures and periods of cognitive decline. The last person to see her alive was her friend Elizabeth Tanner, with whom she spent the day of September eighteen 1888, cleaning houses. At the end of their work day, they walked to their usual lodging to pay for a bed for the night, and Elizabeth left again around 6.30 p.m. Her body was found at 1 o'clock the next morning. She was 44 years old.
0: Catherine, Kate, Eddowes was born in April 1842 in the industrial town of Wolverhampton. Her father was a tin worker, and he was a passionate union man who moved the family to London after his union activities began to get him in trouble with the law. Her father's new employers offered the chance for a relatively high quality education at the Dowgate School, where she thrived, for a few years at least. Both of her parents died of tuberculosis by the time she was 15 and her older siblings sent her back to Wolverhampton to live with relatives and take up factory work. Apparently, she didn't like her relatives or the job, and by age 19, she had taken up with a former soldier turned traveling peddler, Thomas Conway. They traveled the countryside together, composing and selling books of poetry and songs. They settled in London after she became pregnant with their second child. Thomas began working as an assistant bricklayer, but the family didn't thrive and the baby soon died. The family spent the next several years in and out of the workhouse, and as the marriage broke down, with him becoming violent, she turned to her sisters, but also alcohol. Her sisters eventually grew frustrated with her drinking, and they stopped seeing her. She landed in the East End, and she took up with a male companion, John Kelly, who seems to have been mutually committed
1: to her, up to a point. In the late summer of 1888, they traveled together to Kent to take part in the annual hops harvest, but that year's crop was poor, and they were back in London by the end of September. On September 29th, 1888, the two spent the day drinking at the pub before turning their thoughts to where they'd sleep that night. They separated, with John Kelly pawning his boots and heading to the lodging house, while Kate thought she might visit her daughter in the Bermondsey neighborhood to borrow some money. Instead, she was found passed out on Aldgate High Street, and spent part of the night in the drunk tank at the local police station. She was released at 1 a.m., and her body was found at 1.45 a.m. She was 46 years old. We know much, much less about Mary Jane Kelly. She is very much a cipher, which is probably one reason why From Hell chose to make her a principal character. We know that she was much younger than the other victims. She may have been born in Ireland or Wales, but investigators and historians have otherwise never been able to turn up any details of her life or anyone who knew her before those last few years in Whitechapel. According to the story she told about herself, which may or may not be reliable, she worked for a time as a prostitute in in a more high-end establishment in London's West End and found herself trafficked to a brothel in Paris, but escaped, which, if true, would explain her move to Whitechapel and her reluctance to ever visit her old neighbourhood. She seems to have been both well-educated and articulate, with some artistic and musical training, and was said to possess both great beauty and a great deal of personal charm. Around 1887 she entered a relationship
0: with a man called Joseph Barnett. And while he didn't earn much as a porter on the London docks, it seems she was able to quit working in the sex trade. Both of them were drinking heavily by that time, but when he lost his job, tensions flared, and he disapproved of her continued friendship with others in her profession. They began arguing, and during one argument, they broke a window next to the door of their lodging, and that would have fatal consequences for Mary. They made several attempts to reconcile, including one last conversation on November 8, 1888. Joseph left, and she went out for the evening before returning to her room, possibly with a male companion. Her neighbors reported her singing in her room late into the night before she folded her clothes and climbed into bed for a few hours sleep. Of all the women, she is the only one to have been found indoors and in a bed we think she was 25 years old.
1: So what does all of this really tell us? The notion that all of the Ripper's victims were sex workers is really more reflective of the fact that in Victorian society, a woman who lived without the protection of the male members of her family was obviously a fallen, impure character who must be engaged in other illicit behaviors. Complicating this is that many poorer women, including several of our victims, lived in domestic or common-law relationships with men who weren't their husbands, Arrangements that offered protection, financial support, and companionship, and that may have been outside the accepted norms of society, but couldn't be classified as sex work. It's clear to the author of The Five that the police and the newspapers simply didn't look very hard at the distinctions. And she cites a memo from Sir Charles Warren, commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, noting that the police largely found it impossible to tell the difference between a woman who was working in the sex trade and a woman who was merely homeless. A look at the evidence makes it clear that the Ripper, whoever he may have been, probably wasn't targeting sex workers so much as simply homeless alcoholics. The deaths of Polly, Annie, Elizabeth, Kate, and Mary are a horrific tragedy no matter what, and it's sad that their stories have been caricatured over the years in this way. So now we come to the question of how many hats. I think this movie scores around three bowler hats for me. I loved the creepy cinematography and the well-done historical settings. And I always enjoy a good royal conspiracy theory plot. I'm knocking off points because there was really no attempt to build sympathy or connection with any of the murdered women except Mary Kelly, and also for the weird anti-Masonic overtones in the plot. I'll go with 2.5 bowler hats. It's probably because I
0: went to the movie thinking that Johnny Depp was the killer. Defensible. <laughs> but the movie just felt weirdly off somehow to me. I'll give it some kudos, though, for A, Heather Graham's costumes giving her this strong pre-Raphaelite vibe, especially with the unnaturally red hair that some of the figures in those paintings had. B, setting up Aberline as a sort of Sherlock Holmes stand-in. This is a trope that's been done before. Sherlock versus the Ripper, and I think it's pretty interesting. And then C, it looks like Jack the Ripper had sequins on his top hat and cloak. So if you're gonna be murdery, do
1: it with some flair. There is that. (laughs) Finally, a few sundry other notes. The secret heir slash Masonic conspiracy plot at the heart of the movie isn't just the filmmaker's invention. It was actually the subject of a truly bananas book written in the 1970s, Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution. (laughs) The author's main source was a man who claimed to be the grandchild of another offspring of Albert Victor's relationship with Anne, and therefore the rightful heir to the throne. How nice for him. While the book has been thoroughly debunked, secret marriages and contested successions aren't really new to the British royal family. At the time of the Ripper murders, we were less than a century past George IV's secret marriage to the Catholic society beauty, Maria Fitzherbert. Even more mysterious and compelling, at least to me, because I love this kind of thing, when Richard III finally lost his game of hide-and-seek in 2012, researchers establishing his identity through Y-chromosome DNA found something startling. It seems that somewhere between Richard and his great-great-grandfather, King Edward III, there was a break in the male-line DNA, a place where someone was passed off as a legitimate offspring who actually was not. Depending upon where that break occurred, it could have potentially challenged a few people's claims to the English throne. Down with the Tudors, long last. Sorry. Anyway, an interesting
0: little detail in the movie is that the murderer lures each of his victims in by offering them a cluster of grapes, Or, in Lizzie Stride's case, just alcohol. Poor Lizzie. This is largely, but not completely invented. A green grocer in Whitechapel later claimed to have sold some grapes to Elizabeth Stride and an unknown male companion the night before she got killed. What's interesting to me, though, probably unintentional on the part of the filmmakers, is that England was, at the time, in the grips of a long-term drought and an agricultural shortage – so it makes it even more plausible that a poor woman, living largely on tea, toast, potatoes, would find some grapes to be so alluring. Of course, if it weren't for the drought that limited the hop's harvest, Kate Eddowes wouldn't have even been in London on the night she got killed.
1: Poor one out for Kate Eddowes. I don't want to spend a ton of time on possible suspects, because that is the part of the Ripper case that has been done to death. Uh bad. I promise that pun was actually accidental. I will only note that every few years someone comes out with another piece of evidence somewhere that they swear is the slam dunk. In 2016, researchers found a letter from Prince Albert Victor to his doctor in which he discusses his gonorrhea symptoms. Definitely proof, according to more than a few over-caffeinated analysts, that he had been with prostitutes and therefore he had to be the murderer, right? He was in Scotland for at least one of the murderers, so probably not. Then in 2019, Someone turned up a silk shawl that was supposedly found with Kate Eddow's body and that contained genetic material from Aaron Kaminsky, a barber who was interviewed several times as a suspect at the time of the murders. So, definitely, obviously, him, right? The Smithsonian Magazine points out that the actual provenance of the shawl is unknown and the fact that it turned up in the clutches of a known riperologist is a little bit suspect. We're never going to know, but people are going to debate it until the end of time. We're never even going to know for sure how many victims there were, or whether the women known as the Canonical Five were in fact all killed by the same person. Ultimately, while I used to be really fascinated by the mystery, I've come around to thinking that the women and their stories, and what they can tell us about work, poverty, family, sex, addiction, and death in Victorian England, is much more interesting and compelling.
0: And now for our actor count. What's fun about this time is that From Hell was filmed right next to the Night's Tale sound stages in Prague, so there's some crossover. For example, Heather Graham, who we last discussed on the podcast for Bobby, started dating Heath Ledger when they met filming in Prague. Additionally, David Fisher and Vladimir Kalavi played background characters for both movies. Ian Richardson, Johnny Depp's boss with the messy munchops, was a priest in Joyeux Noel. Prince Albert Victor, aka Mark Dexter, played Timothy, the upright veteran husband in the Bletchley Circle. Rupert Halliday-Evans was in the background for both that and From Hell. And Dominic Cooper, who played Abraham Lincoln's mentor in Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, made his motion picture debut as a cop in this movie. And for our fans of a
1: good early 2000s period piece, the woman playing poor lobotomized Anne is just Judy from Love Actually. Wow, she really gets typecast, doesn't she? (sighs) There's that. That's all for Spooky October. This is Costume Drama Rewind. Thanks for listening and see you next time.